The Man in Line, brought to you by NetZeroMatrix.com, providing a citizen's central forum to ensure that your voices are heard. Good afternoon. It's just gone midday on Monday, the 16th of January. This is Manx Radio's Man in Line. Beth sitting in for Andy over the next couple of weeks. And today we're joined by a number of guests from Manx Care. How is Christmas for our healthcare services? What does Opal 4 status at the hospital actually mean? And how do we compare with the UK with regards to our emergency care response? All that and much more in the next hour. If you have a question or a comment to put to our guests on air, 661368 is the number to call. Chris Quirk ready to speak to you. You can also text 166-177 or email studio at manxradio.com. Well, as I say, I'm sure we have a lot to get through on the programme. So let's meet our guests first of all. Um, Dr Ishaku Pam, welcome to the programme. Lovely to see you. What's your role within Manx Care? Thank you very much. Um, I am the clinical director for the emergency department, uh, sorry, medicine department, and um, I am also a consultant uh, geriatrician and physician, so I lead the medicine department and um, I work with my colleagues in Mindscare. Wonderful. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Gareth Davies. You are a consultant in urgent and emergency care and also the clinical director for medicine. What does that mean in practice? So in practice, Beth, that means uh, I look after the emergency department, the minor injuries unit up in Ramsey, the med service, the out-of-hours general practice service, and along with Will, uh, look after the ambulance service. Okay, well, let's go to Will now. Will Bellamy, head of the Isle of Man Ambulance Service, and we're going to talk more about future plan development for the service shortly. But overall, Will, how would you say the service has been faring over the past few weeks? Thank you. Good afternoon, Beth. Um, I think from the excuse me, the Isle of Man Ambulance Service, um, we have been faring quite well um, going into the Christmas and New Year period and um, we were planning for winter just after the other side of TT looking at our forecasting and mapping that demand with an average of uplift and um, so um, we've put additional vehicles on so I think we've, we're doing really well and you know we're it's busy and um, but we're coping. Wonderful thank you Will and also now Teresa Cope Manx Care CEO no stranger to this program um, <laughs> Now, we've heard a lot about Nobles Hospital being at Opal 4 status over the past few weeks. Tell us exactly what that means. Um, So Opal 4 means we are at our highest level of escalation and under significant pressure. So the Opal framework goes from Opal 1, which is effectively business as usual, right through to Opal 4. Um, and Opal 4 is judged by essentially um, what does our staffing look like across the organisation, how many beds do we have available, are our ambulances able to offload in a timely way into the emergency department, how busy the emergency department is, and whether we have um, patients in hospital who are ready to leave hospital, um, but they are delayed uh, in that dis- discharge for whatever re- reason. So we describe that because ultimately uh, we need to take additional actions when we're at Opal 4. Um, So in order to de-escalate that position, we have action cards, which means across the entire organisation, we take additional actions to ensure our patients are being treated safely, but that we decompress um, the hospital. 
uh, and that means actions taken across all the teams within the hospital but also uh, we also ask of additional actions outside the hospital and we also want to get that message across to the public um, uh, you know wanting them to think about where else they could get care so it's that choosing wisely approach uh, which is when we're in pressure we really want the public to think about using things like the MIU service up at Ramsey District Cottage Hospital um, using our community pharmacies self-care making sure you know just the basics like you've got enough medicines paracetamol uh, at home in order to self-care wherever possible. We're going to go to the lines in just a moment, but I just want to talk a little bit more about Opal 4 because many people get very worried when they hear that headline. You mentioned a lot of things that push us into that status, staffing um, and and bed spaces, etc. What has it been that's really pushed us into that over the past few weeks? I think it's an accumulation. You know, it's it's an incredibly busy time going into winter. We always anticipate it to be more busy than than usual. But what we've seen this year is a real increase in acuity of admissions. So when we look at the stats compared to last year, whilst we on the whole haven't um, seen any more numbers of patients through the emergency department, certainly those patients coming through have been sicker. And over the Christmas and New Year period, we saw an increase of admissions due to flu A. So at our peak, we had 18 patients in hospital who were uh, who had flu. Um, and we've also seen a real increase um, through the GP out of hours. So the Manx Emergency Doctor Service saw 80, 86% more calls on Boxing Day this year than last year and 44% more calls on Christmas Day. So it's it's really um, signalling that the uh, the system has been under a great deal of pressure. Now, you know, I think it's really important to describe that when we talk about Opal 4, yes, it does mean we are incredibly busy and under pressure, but we take the Opal 4 actions to decompress. So we, we stop doing some things which aren't uh, clinically as urgent. We make some changes. We stop non-essential meetings because our focus um, during those Opal four times when we're under pressure is to make sure all of our focus and energy is around treating the patients and ultimately allowing the hospital to flow correctly, that we've got the right staffing levels and we are taking the right actions. Dr Gareth Davies, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that the ideal is Opal Level 1? Oh yeah, that would be really good. That would be really good. But um, yes, um, that is business as usual. But even business as usual, I think, across healthcare systems uh, throughout the UK and beyond, uh, even at uh, that level, are incredibly busy. We're seeing a, an excrable increase in the number of patients that are accessing healthcare, whether it is um, primary care, urgent care or emergency care. So even down at Opal 1, uh, the, the place is busy. And I know there's been a lot done with signposting over the past few weeks, choose or encouraging people to choose well. Mm-hmm. How many people would you say are turning up to our emergency departments who don't actually need to be there? I think uh, inevitably there are people that come to the emergency department that can be seen elsewhere. There is, you know, a a, a rich array of services out there in the community for people who've got either urgent or emergency healthcare needs. Uh, Therese has alluded to to several of them, whether it's the minor injuries unit, it's pharmacists, the dental service, 
uh, the uh, eye uh, services uh, down at Specsavers. Um, there are many ways people can get both uh, urgent and emergency care uh, that isn't just available in the uh, emergency department. So we would we'd really encourage people to look at what's available out there in the community for them. Okay, can I ask you all to put your headphones on because we have got a, a caller now. We can go and join Julian on line one. Good afternoon, Julian. Oh, hi, Beth, and hello to your guests. Hi, Julian. Hello. Hi, Julian. Hi. Um, my question today is inspired by the lady who left a voicemail on last Friday's Man in Line asking me about the opt-in or opt-out status for organ donation on the Isle of Man, which Beth answered correctly as opt-out here since February 2021. And her voicemail leads me to ask this question. If in the future, if assisted dying legislation is passed, if an assisted dying person on the island wishes to donate their organs, at what point after the euthanasia procedure would they be declared dead? And when would organ harvesting commence? In other words, what is your definition of dead? Would anyone like to answer that question? Um, I think I'll try and take that. But I think, you know, the assisted dying... Uh, legislation and uh, the discussion is in its very very early stages and Julian I know you and I have talked about this on previous calls Uh, we are nowhere near I think describing how we would sort of implement and work around that um, if it ever was to be brought in on the island so I guess in short I don't want to evade answering your questions but I think um, it's far too early to 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 really understand what would be the operational um, implementation of, uh, of of any uh, legislation put in place around assisted dying. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Julian, for getting in touch with that call. Um, just want to talk a little bit more about the Opal 4 status, the pressure on our health services. And it's something that we're told about a lot is the problem people have getting GP appointments. And I wonder how much of that um, pre- presentation at our emergency departments could be avoided if people felt that they could speak to somebody and allay some of their fears. I think Gareth might be able to answer this, but I think you know it is inevitable that all of the system is under pressure, and we have absolutely acknowledged just how busy GPs are. Um, we've done some comparison, and some of this is what we discussed at the board last week. Um, Some of our response times, both in terms of primary care, ambulance times and um, the performance we're able to achieve in our emergency department, whilst it's not exactly what we would want, um, it's very evident that um, the Isle of Man health and care system is faring much better than the UK health and care system at this moment in time. Um, we, We do need to... Uh, be able to have a more comprehensive primary care offer and that's why that's where primary care at scale has evolved from recognizing we need to build more consistent teams around uh, our primary care provision have an increased offer uh, have additional professionals working uh, in the out of hospital space which ultimately mean we've got a very comprehensive out of hospital and primary care offer using using pharmacists, opticians, extended scope physiotherapists, um, additional uh, practice nurses, advanced nurse practitioners, um, paramedics in primary care. You know, there's a there's a workforce there which really uh, will strengthen primary care and. 
you know, good quality primary care is the absolute bedrock of any effective health and care system. But uh, we want to keep people local in their communities as far as possible. But Dr. Gareth Davies, I suppose what I'm getting at is that when people feel unwell, when they have concerns, they need to speak to somebody straight away mm. to make them feel better, even from that point of view. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, with, there are many ways by which that uh, happens. And certainly one of the services that I look after, which is the med service and out of hours general practice service for uh, evenings and, and weekends, um, there is that ability to, to phone up and speak to a healthcare um, professional. Although I did uh, see, actually, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. I did see over Christmas people saying that they were struggling to get through yeah, to meds. Yeah, and and I think that uh, that is fair that... Uh, over the Christmas period, we did get uh, swamped and there was a degree of wait for for people who were calling uh, the service. Uh, and that's something we are uh, trying to uh, trying to address. Um, but um, I, I just really wanted to go back to a, another point that Theresa made um, earlier on, which actually for our, our community, the the complexity of the patients that are now coming to the emergency department is a paradigm different to uh, uh, a couple of years ago. So the patients, uh, we see a very elderly demographic uh, in the emergency department on the island, and the patients that we get are, are, are very rarely simple. They very rarely come in with one emergency healthcare problem. They will have uh, um, many uh, uh, comorbidities that are affecting them, and it just takes uh, one particular uh, disease or problem to set all of those off. Um, so, patients um, are more complex now, and uh, you know we find ourselves uh, having to uh, admit uh, more patients than uh, we historically did, and I pass the patients on to uh, uh, to a sharku. But I think we're you know even in that domain we are still in a far better place than the UK, although things do feel tight and under pressure on the island um, compared to what the, what is going on in the UK you know we are we are still providing uh, quite a good service uh, compared to what you see on the the news uh, across and that's whether it's uh, waiting in uh, emergency departments or the number of patients that are admitted um, we, we still uh, are perf outperforming um, our UK uh, partners. Dr. Pam? Yes, uh, just to key into what Gareth said about uh, the complexity of the patients we are seeing, um, our statistics have shown time and again from 2018 up to this point that um, 60 to 70 percent of our admitted patients are patients who would, we would describe as having frailty. So these are individuals who are over the age of 75 with usually two or more frailty syndromes, so from falls to cognitive impairment, dementia, uh, you know, polypharmacy, which means they're on lots of different drugs, carer strain, so families can't cope, there's not enough provision in the community for social care. So that uh, demographic is what we're seeing in hospital, and therefore these are individuals who need to spend prolonged periods of time, which then means that there is an exit block, and therefore Although the numbers haven't uh, increased significantly attending ED, it means, though, that the throughput of patients is, uh, 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 you know, delayed, and therefore uh, ED reflects that pressure. 
So what plans are there then to address that? If that's, I mean, I suppose the, the term would be bed blockers that people understand. What can we do about that? So, um, and, and that is a systemic problem, uh, challenge rather. Uh, it's a demographic challenge which is now uh, prevalent around the world. The um, population pyramid is inverse. You're getting older people um, uh, in terms of uh, numerical proportion being as many or even more than those uh, uh, who are younger. So that is something that um, is beyond sort of nobles, perhaps beyond Manx care. It is one that is a, a population-wide issue. And, you know, I, I will hand over to Teresa. She knows, uh, um, you know, it's what actually is propelling the need for transformation. Mm. That's right. And, um, you know, that sort of ageing profile is is what we're really cognizant of. So uh, Manx Care has invested in a frailty programme. So uh, community geriatricians, uh, frailty lead nurses, uh, a dedicated ward for frailty, because this is about um, taking a very proactive and preventative approach to identifying frailty in the community, uh, undertaking comprehensive geriatric assessments. Um, and and really putting a lot of local support in. So we actually try and keep people well and independent in their own home through proactive interventions, uh, which sort of try and counteract uh, frailty. Um, At the other end, then when people come into hospital, we really should be aiming for them to spend Um, the shortest amount of time in hospital before they become medically well uh, and we should be looking at supporting their rehabilitation and reablement needs in the community. So again the second part of that is around investment in what we would call the intermediate tier, that that suite of provision which sits between hospital-based services and primary care and those are the two strands of investment which Manx Care through um, DHSC funding and through our mandate we are putting in place um, because that is about supporting people to stay at home um, and putting in steps to make sure that uh, people can stay well and step up and stepped down from hospital-based care. Well, let's go back to the lines now. We can join Mary on line one, who has a comment or question about sign, the signposting leaflet for Manx Care. Good afternoon, Mary. Hello. Um, yes, I, I've been reading through this leaflet, um, and I was just wondering, vulnerable people, and there are quite a few vulnerable people around still who are self, trying to isolate as best they can, and if they actually get covid the original um, instructions were to ring the GP straight away and identify that they were eligible for antiviral drugs. Well, and I've been all through this little leaflet and there's absolutely nothing in here about vulnerable people. There's just a small piece about COVID-19 symptoms and going online and not going into health and social care settings. But there's nothing about vulnerable people. A lot of the vulnerable people are elderly and a lot of them are not online anyway. So what are the actual um, instructions if, if any of those people do go down with COVID Dr. at Pam. the moment? Yes, um, I'm sorry to hear that uh, the message hasn't gone out effectively to the public around uh, what pathways are available to patients who are vulnerable. And and just for clarity, 
those we would consider vulnerable uh, are defined um, you know, around those who have cancer, for example, or who are on treatments that render their immune systems uh, um, 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 uh, vulnerable to, to infections. Uh, and so it's, it's a, it's a, there is a, a definition around it. So it may not necessarily chime with what people would consider vulnerable. But the message really is that people who fall within those groups um, ought to call their GPs. Uh, there is a period of time, a window of opportunity of five days um, within which they, they, they can then receive um, um, antivirals. And we have a pathway through the ambulatory emergency clinic, which is based in the emergency department. And so it is that call to GPs which should then activate a call to the ambulatory emergency clinic. And then there is a discussion between uh, uh, the GP and the AEC uh, because these are drugs that have uh, exclusion criteria as well as inclusion. So particularly the first line one, which is Paxlovid, uh, it interacts with quite a lot of medications that patients take. And so it, that discussion with the GP is absolutely important to then decide which of the treatments uh, are available to, to the individual. So for some reason, and I'm sure we'll take this back, um, that message perhaps has not uh, been delivered appropriately but it's a system that's up and running that, in fact, is oversubscribed. We've been very pleased with the uptake, and, and I think the majority of people who've needed um, um, antivirals have received them. Thank you. Does that answer your question, Mary? Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it's good to know that um, there is a, a time limit to get the antiviral drugs because, as you know, it's very hard to get through to the GP. <coughs> I mean, you can, you know, you could test positive in the morning and still be trying to get through to the GP in the afternoon. But it's good to know that there is, it isn't such an urgent um, delivery of the antiviral drug. There is a, a, a gap that, you know, the time before you can still have them, shall we say. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much, Mary. Appreciate your call and your question. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Um, we can go to line two now and join David. Good afternoon, David. Hi, Beth, and the panel. Just want to give you a bouquet, not to you personally, uh, Beth. Shame. The, the hospital itself and the Scottish team that, that are over and are uh, doing these initiatives. I w- uh, was one of the pack that got done with a knee, and I'm into my 10th week now, and I'm able to walk without a stick. Uh, can't carry much tea without spilling it, but I'm still there. So I want to get that positive out. That was a great initiative that was done as far as the Isle of Man was concerned. And I'll tell you for why. The people were treated on the island. They, I was only in two days. And after two days in the private ward, uh, not that it wasn't great, uh, I was out. They said, right, we want the next people in. They were doing three a day, I was told. That was either three hips or three, three knees. And that must have put a good dint in uh, uh, the outstanding things that were to give a quality of life to some people, never mind myself. Brilliant. Thank you so much, David. Teresa? Yeah, no, thank you for that feedback, David. And I'm, I'm really pleased you're on the mend and you've had a really good experience. We knew that we inherited really great waiting lists, um, far too far too big and impacted by COVID. We were really fortunate to get an initial tranche of money from the DHSC and from government. 
And obviously the additional £18.3 million announced at the end of last year is really welcome. Um, the team from Scotland are working in conjunction with our own orthopaedic surgeons. And as you say, we're able to get a level of efficiency through our theatres and the, um, the average length of stay for a patient who's having a joint replacement is 1.4 days. So when we think about the availability of our beds and our capacity, we are making really efficient use, which means we are able to absolutely treat the maximum number of patients and um, with that sort of physio wraparound support. So um, it has been incredibly successful. We continue to commit to uh, the trajectories and report back on that re regularly. And we, we talk about it on this, this show quite, quite, quite a bit because it is really important that we respond to the waiting list challenges. Thank you very much thank and you. thank you David for that. Uh, just a quick text before we take a short break. DM says I had to call meds at the weekend. It couldn't have been easier. I got a quick call back from a doctor. He was very helpful and agreed I needed medication for my asthma. He offered to see me but I felt it wasn't needed. A prescription was sent to my local chemist so within an hour I had the tablets. A very quick and efficient system. Any other thoughts? 166177 studio at manxradio.com or you can call 66 13 68. The Man in Line, brought to you by NetZeroMatrix.com, the Isle of Man's main Net Zero progress website. It's just after 12.33. With regard to Mary's call a short time ago, I just want to let you know that we've had some clarification and the antiviral information was not included in the signposting leaflet because it's only relevant to a small portion of the population. Uh, I want to go to the head of the ambulance service, Will Bellamy, now. Now, Will, we've heard some pretty stark news from the UK in recent days mm -hmm. about ambulance waiting times. How many ambulances do we have here available in the Isle of Man during the day, first of all? Yeah, so during the day we have four frontline ambulances um, and one urgent transport service. So um, it takes our GP urgent transfers to the airport, discharges, stretcher discharges, um, and then free vehicles overnight. Now, I saw some information that said, I think it's roughly 13,000 calls mm -hmm. a year to the ambulance yep. service. In 2005, there were 5,000 calls a year, roughly. Yep. Yet the model of ambulance provision hasn't changed. People will wonder why that is. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, from a humble beginnings, the ambulance service here on the, um, the Isle of Man has been a seen as, um, at the end of the patient journey, a transport service of taking people to or from hospital. And I think as we've continued that growth in activity, we have to really now look at our operational and clinical model um, for paramedics to make sure that we provide the best care for patients and for the island. How often would you say ambulances are called to people who don't really need them? So I don't think I, I would say people don't need them. You know, patient healthcare access and healthcare is so complex, and people, you know work with a brand that they know and trust which is 999 and we you know we we have a model that's 100% response with two people um, in an intensive care ambulance and actually those patients that we could could we deal with them better signpost them over the phone or even access um, other services and book them into it is surely much more effective and efficient way. Well, that takes us on to the news that we've been hearing this morning about mm. clinical navigators mm. in the emergency services joint control room. Explain that to us in layman's terms. Yeah, so basically it's putting a clinician into the control room um, to work with um, our um, 
control room staff just to oversee some of the 99s um, calls um, support them if they've got any clinical questions but they are experts in their own right and we're not wanting to interfere in that process but also when patients are identified um, of low acuity so the ambulances categories are categorized from level one to level four or cat one to cat four and um, one being the most extreme so you're not breathing or you're fitting um, and category five is our the we say that we can potentially deal with you over the phone or identify send specialist clinicians and we did two and a half thousand of those calls last year alone um, and we responded to them all with ambulances so we're just going to look at those calls um, screen them see what we can do and see what's more appropriate and have some conversations with people but as I say um, having conversations with them and see how we can appropriately deal with them. When's this going to start then? So we're currently, we've never done this before. You know, we're in uncharted waters from um, from a um, clinical point of view. So we're just taking our time. We're looking at um, how um, we can do the clinical governance, train people, test all the systems, test how um, we've designed it to see whether it works before we put patients through it for obviously patient safety. So we're looking to kick off substantively from, you know, the new financial year um, from April onwards with people in the, but between now and then we are testing it we will have clinicians that have gone through training being supported from colleagues from across who do this as their their day job their bread and butter and then ensuring that you know it's safe for what we, we're doing well as you say there will be clinicians but that's a tremendous amount of responsibility on the person mm. assessing the call how confident are you that the caller will have faith when they're told an ambulance isn't needed absolutely so it's not just um it's not just um, a clinician making their own decisions off the top of their head. They're working with a a, um, a triage system to rule out, just to, just to guide the clinician to make sure red clinical red flags have been excluded for whatever the reasons are, and then have that discussions with the uh, the patient to manage expectations, to understand what their concerns are, and um, you know it's not a done to, it's done in collaboration with them. Okay, let's go back to the lines now, and we can join Andrew on line one. Good afternoon. Hi there, good day to you and uh, your guests. Um, just following up, please, from your previous caller who was talking about meds and how quick and efficient it is, I was wondering from the meds team there that have they got any sort of statistics to uh, reflect how many calls they're perhaps getting because people uh, have a, are having difficulty getting through to their own GPs? Because, you know, if you're phoning the GP and you get three times, say, uh, over a morning and you can't get through, you think to yourself, well, why should I carry on? Let's just phone meds. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Beth. Um, uh, Thank you, Andrew. And uh, it, it is a really important observation. And I think we're all very much aware of the um uh, the lack of capacity at the moment in primary care in some areas and there is no doubt that uh, some people are struggling to to get hold of their GPs during an hour's time and they are defaulting to um, to the meds uh, med service and we recognize that and uh, we are monitoring um, those those numbers um, but we should emphasize that actually, that lack of capacity is recognised in in um, primary care, and I think uh, Teresa could probably do a much better job than me than explaining the efforts that are going into 
improving that capacity so people aren't defaulting to uh, to med so uh, yes andrew you are you are right it is happening uh, but there are things that are being done about it and i'll hand over to teresa I suppose, Theresa, it just goes down to what we were saying before about people sometimes just need to speak to someone, as is going to possibly happen with the clinical navigators in the emergency joint services control room. Um, and it seems that we've made advances in some ways, you know, video conferencing and, and whatever, but it feels like there aren't enough people to answer the calls. And surely that would take pressure off elsewhere if, if that was to happen. Uh, yes, it, yes, it would. And and it's it all links back to being able to have different ways of delivering healthcare. So, you know, the clinicians in the emergency joint control room is one way of, of ensuring that the patients who absolutely do need the ambulance get the ambulance and, and other patients who can be given advice um, and guidance over the phone. Um, you know, potentially could be directed into a different type of service is is what we're trying to achieve. And I guess that's layered all throughout Manx Care. We really want to reduce the level of demand on the urgent and emergency services by having a much more planned preventative model of delivery across all our services. John's been in touch to ask, has any thought been put into opening walk-in doctor's clinics like there are in the UK, 24 hours a day, say one in Douglas, Ramsey, Peel, Castletown, no appointment needed. Maybe that would take the pressure off the doctors and ED department. Yes, it's certainly one of the uh, options. And um, and myself and uh, Dr. Oliver Ellis, who's the medical director of the Primary Care Network, are in discussions about some of those other options that exist to try and help the resilience of, of, of primary care. You know, primary care at scale, um, which is sort of our, our new target operating model for, for primary care going forward from, from next, uh, from April, um, does sort of describe some of that but it's it's really clear that primary care is under massive pressure and we need to look at other solutions including potentially virtual solutions uh, to to aid us in that to give us some resilience. Uh, a message in from Texter ending 692 and I think this is an interesting point your panel keeps going on about us old people that have lots of things wrong with us they should consider that for 48 years we paid into the NHS for now um, Dr Pam I'll come to you on this one because there is that feeling that when we constantly talk about our ageing population people who are of that age are made to feel like a burden Well um, I'd just like to say um, I'm a geriatrician so um my job is to look after older people um, and and we cannot be further away from that um, idea that we discriminate against our older people or, or make them feel less welcome. They are entirely appropriate in terms of the the, the care that they, they they need and deserve and um, and and so as Teresa had mentioned earlier, it is with this in mind that Manx Care has employed even more geriatricians. We recognise the fact that the uh, majority of patients we have uh, in the hospital are of that group, and and we don't feel that they shouldn't be there. We feel they deserve a much better service than they're getting, um, and and it's you know it's in terms of delivering that service in a way that is uh, uh, that they would want that we endeavour. So. It, it, we do not in any way at all uh, encourage that thinking that um, they don't deserve to be treated. The, the, the caller is absolutely right. They've paid into the system and they should get every ounce of uh, compassion and treatment that they deserve. Thank you. 12.43 on The Man in Line. We'll be back after this. 
The Man in Line, brought to you by NetZeroMatrix.com, the world's leading carbon register and validation ecosystem. Just coming up to quarter to one, we're joined by several guests from Manx Care. We're going to go straight back to the lines and join Diane now, first on line one. Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Oh, hello. hello. Hi. Sorry, I don't know whether I got the wrong name there. Who's that? It's Nigel. Oh, Nigel. Doesn't sound like Diane. But anyway, what's your question, Nigel? Well, I'll tell you what it was. Just going back to your antiviral um, COVID tablets. I was diagnosed in July um, with COVID and I have a really aggressive prostate cancer. Went to see my GP. He admitted me to A&E straight away, which I went into. Um, I was in agony. Joints, headaches, everything that COVID goes with. They weren't sure what to do with me. I was in for about eight hours. That was fine. They were going to admit me to a ward. And then they decided they were going to try me on this antiviral tablet. So came home, took the tablets. Within the first four hours of going back to bed and then waking up, the pain and everything, and this is no word of a lie, had near enough disappeared. I Googled it and, and read the reports about it, about some people say they can have an instant response with it. Um, the lingering taste that you can have over the week's period of tablets was there. I had all of that, but I couldn't believe the instant response of these tablets actually brought me back, back round again, and I took the week's tablets. Now, I found out the cost of the tablets, which was about £600. So they'd sent me home, put me on the tablets, and I was fine. What I don't understand is why do they not, and I don't mean dish them out willy-nilly, but give them to more patients that are possibly going to go in hospital with COVID on the grounds that the tablets do work and they'd be a damn sight cheaper than sending people home and keeping them in hospital. Okay, Uh, Dr. Pam? Right, I'm really pleased to hear that you had an excellent response to um, the treatment, which is exactly what we um, uh, envisaged in setting up the pathways. In answer to your question, I think we have to reflect on the fact that COVID is a relatively new disease. Many will remember the controversies around various treatments. And so uh, a number of these treatments are novel and, you know, you don't sort of roll them out uh, a widespread. They are actually also really very strong medications that um, many of them are, have been used in cancers and so on. So they are ones that are not without risk so and not without a lot of interactions with existing medications, as I've previously mentioned. So th- they have to be given to uh, a narrow base uh, of the population uh, and only when they're proven to be safe in, in those populations as well as beyond. Uh, and safe, I mean, by... Um, well-structured studies uh, that they will not then be um, uh, given out on a wider scale until they they understandably attain those precise uh, parameters for safety and effectiveness. Thank you very much indeed and thank you to Nigel. Let's go back to the lines now and I think we can join Howard on line three. Is that you there, Howard? It is. Hi, Beth. Uh, Good afternoon to your panel. Uh, Just a question that... uh, It'll go particularly to, I think, is Miss Cope, is it? Is yes. Is that who you've got with you? Yeah. Um, one thing you read in the paper uh, about GPs and various other medical practitioners within the UK, when they're earning their wage, like everybody that's in a job, they're paying into a pension scheme. And the UK government put a ceiling on that. 
which meant that once they reach that, it's going to be cost prohibitive to remain working. And they are retiring what we would term as early and um, moving on to pastures new. But this has led to a depletion of GPs throughout the whole of the UK. Is a similar situation applicable to the Alamand? Does the pension scheme have the same restrictions uh, in uh, the ceiling on uh, the pension pot? Theresa, I'm, I'm not a pensions expert, but it isn't the same as the UK. Uh, there aren't the same restrictions on the pension pot as what there are. Um, so, you know, we're not seeing that as a reason why clinicians are essentially le- leaving the ser- service. Um, but I think it is something that we need to continue to look at to ensure that um, sort of the pension contributions and the, the the wider pension framework do support our clinicians to continue working for as long as they want to continue working. And I've certainly got some meetings set up with the pensions authority here to, to progress some of those discussions. It's interesting, uh, you were saying at the beginning of the programme when we were talking about the Opal 4 status, that uh, part of the factors that feed into that is staffing issues, mm. so recruitment. Would you have a ballpark figure for how many clinicians' uh, positions that you're currently seeking to fill? We've got about a 20% vacancy factor rate across the entire organisation uh, and we, we employ uh, around 2,800 people. So it's a significant vacancy factor. And if you listen to our board last week in public, uh, we're starting to take some steps. We've already tried to do a number of things in order to respond to that vacancy gap. But I think where we're at as Manx Care is recognising that something a little bit more fundamental, bold, Um, has to be done and so we have talked extensively um, about increasing the number of um, domestic training places for all professionals but particularly for registered nurses and also what we can do around the bursary uh, to increase that. Accommodation issues faced by an ecology nurse were highlighted on Manx Radio last week. He said if he couldn't find anywhere to rent which would accept his dog, Mm. he'd be forced to return to the UK. It does feel sometimes like not enough is being done to make the island an attractive proposition. We used to have the nurses' home. I suppose it's quite nice for people who do stressful jobs to be together, to be able to talk things through. What is there to attract people here, really? Yeah, so... um Manx Care is part of a wider uh, government piece around trying to uh, identify affordable accommodation, flexible accommodation, um, not only for for sort of individuals, but also to support families. You know, we want to attract families and that means bringing um, across people who have children, who have pets and being able to source appropriate accommodation for them. Uh, Manx Care has recently agreed a development which will enable us to increase um, our housing stock uh, for registered workers. Um, but it, it is a wider government response, but we are linked into those dis- discussions and it's really important that uh, we remain attractive and competitive uh, when we think about the levels of vacancy that exist across healthcare, we've got to do things which uh, really enable people to be able to come here. We know it's quite expensive to live here compared to some parts of the UK. So anything we can do in that space to uh, to be attractive is is really important. And um, that that wider piece of work with the Department for Enterprise, uh, Department for Health um, and Social Care is 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 important.
We had a nice message from Tommy, who's been on to say the ambulance service saved his life many years ago after his heart had stopped, says he wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. Uh, but a text in, Will Bellamy, asking, can you explain why on a Saturday daytime it takes one and a half hours for an ambulance to respond to a stroke victim in Douglas? Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that um, experience was ha- um, had by a patient. And if, although I can't talk about um, specific cases, if they wish to get in contact via MCALS, we'll I'll certainly take up the um, a review of what had happened. Uh, I think from what perspective, uh, you know, if people have strokes, um, chest pains, it gets prioritised as a category two on the whole, which is an 18 minute response time um, on average we need to have. Um, last year, um, we achieved 13 minute response time. So it's not the, um, this is an exception, it's not the standard that we try um, or that we expect to achieve and want to achieve. And um Apologies that that did happen, but again, if they wish to contact offline through MCALS, I'll certainly look into the the case. Just a few minutes left of this programme. I want to come to you, Dr Pam. Um, Obviously, the best thing would be people not being unwell in the first place. How many of the ailments that uh, are presented at our EDs around the island would be preventable if maybe people took a little bit more responsibility for their own health? Uh, Thank you. Um, And I think that's a question that I might share with Gareth, but... um, there are quite a number of chronic diseases that um, feed into ultimate illness, often years after uh, the the behaviours that um, that that predispose to these conditions. So you know, there's a wide range of them. You know, from diabetes, hypertension, uh, um, um, uh, obesity, in particular, those those sort of three big ones. Um, they then lead to systemic problems that then ultimately manifest in disease. Uh, we also cannot but mention uh, behaviours around smoking and alcohol consumption. Uh, they also play a part. So it's a complex interplay of um, you know, bodily dysfunction as well as, uh, as uh, uh, behavioural uh, issues that then ultimately lead to disease. So it's all the sensible things people need to think about. Um, you know, nobody is coated in Teflon and these behaviors start in much younger age groups. And we're seeing that the disease that people manifest with uh, are occurring much older, particularly alcohol-related complications. Dr. Gareth Davies? Yeah, I, I, I'd completely agree with Sharku that uh, there are many, many um, uh, presentations to the emergency department where actually diet and lifestyle are at the heart of their issues. And, you know, if there's one thing that we, I think, would all like to say is that uh, as a community, everyone taking uh, greater ownership of their health care is um, a, a fundamental step uh, for us all to get this right. So... A lot covered over the past hour. I'm aware I've got uh, some texts and emails that we haven't been able to get to. So I think what we will do, um, if everyone is able to stay for a little bit, we'll go through these texts and then I'll put that up as a podcast a little bit later. Uh, But thank you very much to our guests on this programme, Dr. Ashaku Pam, Dr. Gareth Davies, Will Bellamy, Head of the Ambulance Service, and Teresa Cope, who is the Manx Care CEO. If there's anything you've heard today that you'd like to discuss on future programmes or you'd like to leave us a message that we play out in the programme, 682631 is the number to call and you'll be able to listen back to this programme as a podcast very shortly. It will also be available 
as a video to watch, which we're all delighted about and here, I can tell you. Uh, that is all for today, though. Thank you so much to the programme's producers, Chris Quirk and Howard Kane. I will be back, as I say, tomorrow at midday. It is an open line then, so if there's anything at all you want to talk about, you can get in touch, 66 13 68. As I say, leave a message if you'd rather do that. Coming up next, it's Chris Quirk with 1 to 3. Have a great afternoon and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.